Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Episode 68, Revelation 9, verses 7 through 10. Their appearance. Revelation 9, 7 through 10. The appearance of the locusts was like horses having been prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tail is the power to hurt men for five months. For some very strange and bizarre reason, the Holy Spirit deems it necessary that we know in grotesque detail what these demons look like. It is not enough to know that they are locusts with scorpion-like tails and that they have the power to inflict men with torment, which is horrific enough. He wants us to know specific details about the looks of these demons. He wants us to get to know them more thoroughly. And this, I don't know, is exceptionally odd. The fact that they even exist is horrifying enough, but the spirit has an agenda. This description evokes images of a terrible nightmare. If in their dreams a person saw one of these creatures with their scorpion tail whipping in the air coming after them, I'm sure they would change their diet, no more pizza before bed, give up the alcohol, swear to stop cursing, or something, anything to make sure they do not have to have another dream like that. So far, except for the description of the risen son of man, all descriptions of spiritual beings have been rather vague. Whether it is the horses and their riders, the four, the 24 elders, the tribes of Israel, or the myriad of angels, we are only given a general description of what they are like, sometimes not much more than a color. We have been forced to look to the code and the codex to gain more information. In fact, we will find that we are not even given this much detail about the beast, the central antagonist in this narrative. The only other times we are given this level of exacting detail is, number one, when we're given a general description of another set of demons who will kill one-third of mankind, and two, when we are given a description of religion, mystery Babylon, images the woman who chooses to now be sitting on the beast. The Holy Spirit will take a deep dive into many details to describe these demons and this woman who symbolizes religion, as well as her destruction and the demise of all those who profited from this woman's activity. But that is it. We have the in-depth description of the risen son of man and the in-depth description of Mystery Babylon, which kind of makes sense since Mystery Babylon has primarily built its empire or spiritual community around the risen son of man. Yet for some odd reason, God wants us to know intense details about these two groups of demons. Think about it. We have a general description of these locust-like demons. We know what they do. We know where they come from. And we are told that they have a king. And you would think that would be enough. 
Therefore, we must ask why was this next set of verses detailing the bone-chilling characteristics of these demons even necessary to the overall narrative? Clearly, these descriptions must tell us more than is otherwise obvious to the casual reader. Details that the Spirit deems necessary for us to understand. Why the detail? There is something very personal about this description. And perhaps that is why the Spirit felt it was necessary to add all the detail. This part of the story is personal. And it is targeted against those who do not bear the signet of the Son. To help frame our understanding, let us jump forward to chapter 9, verse 11, and then we'll come back to these descriptions. The secret identity of the beast, Revelation 9, 11. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. This is really one of the hallmark verses of Revelation as we are given the secret identity of the beast, the demon who will possess the man we call the Antichrist. First, we notice that this angel is the king over the locust-like demons. This is odd, since according to Proverbs, the locust has no king, but moves out as a frenzied collective. Yet this angel rules over these locust-like demons as their king. Second, he is called the angel of the abyss. This specific description gives us our understanding that this king of the abyss is the demon identified throughout Revelation as the beast. This is the demon who will possess the man we call the Antichrist. In chapter 11, verse 7, we are told that the beast comes up out of the abyss. In 17.3, we are given an image of a woman who rides the beast. And in 17.8, we are told that this beast upon whom this woman rides is about to come up out of the abyss. The image is a prequel. And the people of the world will wonder when they see the beast. This is essentially the same description we get in Revelation 13, verse 3, where it says that the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. This king of the abyss who rules over these locust-like demons is the beast. We will dive deeper in our understanding of this king a little later. Fiction alert, fiction alert, the dragon and the beast. We will cover this again, but it's important, critical and essential to understand that the beast is imaged as a separate and distinct angel or demonic being from the dragon, who is also referred to in Revelation as the serpent of old, Satan, the devil, or some might call him Lucifer. We see this distinction in Revelation 13, 1 through 10, where the dragon is imaged as standing on the seashore next to the restless masses of wicked humanity, and the beast suddenly arises out of that sea, where that something like a great mountain had fallen. And the dragon gives to the beast his power and his throne and great authority, in effect supercharging this angel of the abyss. This passage goes on to say that the whole world was amazed, or after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Again, we see a complete distinction between the dragon and the beast. By the way, we will find out that this idea of waging war is demonic chatter as the kingdom of darkness functions through sheer force, power, and authority. Who can beat up who? The point being, 
that with the beast supercharged, none of the other members of the satanic council of rulers, nor any kings of the earth, demons who rule over humanity, nor any other celestial spirit will be able to stand against the beast. Satan is the most powerful of the spirits of darkness, the most glorious of God's creation. And now that the beast gets supercharged, he becomes number two in the demonic hierarchy. Much later, during the last part of the second three and a half years of the tribulation, there is this amazing scene where unclean spirits like frogs, spirits of demons, come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Yes, demons possess demons. Very bizarre. But once again, the beast and the dragon are presented to us as separate spiritual angelic beings. And then at the end of Revelation narrative, at Jesus' second coming, the beast is thrown into the lake of fire, whereas the dragon is chained and held hostage in the abyss for the next 1,000 years. In short, the dragon, the serpent of old, Satan, the devil, whose name is Lucifer, is not the beast, and the beast is not the dragon. Much of the modern-day fictional narrative states that it is Satan, the dragon, who will possess the man we call the Antichrist. This has been taught in sermon after sermon and printed in book after book. But it is unequivocally wrong. And this error is so blatantly obvious, it is beyond me to understand how this fiction came to be so pervasive in the fictional end times narrative of our day. In the Codex, we are told that the lawless one, which is a euphemism for the Antichrist, also called the son of destruction, destruction or destroyer is the name of the beast. We're told that the son of destruction now comes in accord with or after the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with the all deception of wickedness. And this makes sense because the dragon gives to the beast his power, throne, and great authority. Yes, the activities of the beast will be expressed through the lawless one, the man we call the Antichrist, and they will be in accord or just like the activity of Satan, steeped in deception and wickedness. But in the narrative, these two players are separate and distinct in their role and personhood. The man and the beast. Moreover, at the famed abomination of desolation, it is the beast who possesses the man we call the Antichrist and who will take on the mantle of God and demand to be worshipped as God. In the Codex, we get this coded message by the Spirit who states that this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is choosing to even now be opposing and is choosing to even now be exalting himself above all that is now being called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the nows or the sanctuary of God, now displaying himself as being God. Thus, with the prevalent use of the present tense, we know that the Holy Spirit, although referring to the man of lawlessness, is giving us the bigger picture of the spirit of the Antichrist or the beast that possesses this man just as he mentions the same demonic spirit of the Antichrist in 1 John 4, 3. Whether the man is presently alive or not, we cannot say. We do know, however, that he was not alive back when John was writing. But the Holy Spirit was clear that this spirit of the Antichrist, the beast, was not only alive back then, but was even then operating or exerting influence in the world. In large part, the man is incidental. This storyline is about the spiritual being that possesses the man, which is why the man we call the Antichrist is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. 
We are also specifically told in Daniel that this man will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will show no regard for the god of his fathers and show no regard for any other god or any other demonic spirit, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead of worshiping those other gods, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. However, because he magnifies himself above the other gods, we can be sure that Daniel giving us a blended image of the man and the beast. We will get into the specific details later, but this god of fortresses is a picture of Satan, imaged as a fire-breathing dragon, where his very armor or fortress of protection are his scales, which are perfectly sealed and impenetrable by any weapon. Not even air can come between his scales. They are his pride. Yahweh boasts that nothing on earth is like him, one made without fear. He is king over all the sons of pride. So with this picture within a picture, the beast within the man, the man who is possessed by the beast, we can understand that the only being, the beast, and the man will honor will be the dragon who gives his power, throne, and great authority to the beast. The dragon being a god whom his fathers did not know or worship. And once supercharged by the dragon's gift, this man and the beast will take their authority from within the sanctuary of God, the nous, from within the true church comprised of the bondservants of Jesus Christ, and declare that he is God. At that point, he will demand to be worshipped, and those who do not will be killed. Revelation 13, 3-6 And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, now saying, Who is like the beast? And who is now able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, now speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who are now dwelling in heaven. Revelation 13, 11 through 16. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. This is the false prophet. He now exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he now makes the earth and those who are now dwelling in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He now performs great signs, so that he even now makes fire now come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he now deceives those who are now dwelling on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. Now telling those who are now dwelling on the earth to make an image to the beast who has the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Hence, we get this terrible headline news regarding the witnesses who hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, or he will shatter the power of the holy people. This is just as the prophet Daniel foretold when he spoke of this man and beast and said that on the wing of abomination, or 
shortly after the abomination of desolation. He will cause horror or make desolate and wage war with the saints and overpower them, which is a nice way of saying that he will kill them. Let's wrap up this fiction alert. The Holy Spirit makes a clear, unequivocal delineation between not only the dragon and the beast, but the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The only thing that is blurred in terms of a picture within a picture are the references to the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and the one whose name is destruction, the beast. They are pictured in effect as one and the same, just like a king and his kingdom are often pictured as one and the same. So is this man and the beast who possesses him. The locust-like demonic descriptions. Revelation 9, 7 through 10. The appearance of the locusts was like horses having been prepared for battle. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. And their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women. And their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. The beast's secret police. There is one thing that is normal for nasty kings and for tyrants. And that is that they need enforcers to control their followers. Secret police who will ensure their own are loyal and stick to the king's agenda. For instance, Hitler had the SS and the Gestapo to control his own people and brutally and mercilessly put down any who may have entertained thoughts of rebellion or sedition. These enforcers were sadistic butchers working for a man of evil, but their job was to keep their own people in line. They were not focused on the external enemies of Germany, but only on those enemies who would arise from within. Similarly, The damage these locust-like demons do is not to those who are from a foreign hostile kingdom, the people of God. They are not a normal army who is focused on stopping the foreign enemy. And they do not exercise their power over those who still have spiritual life in their soul, the green things. Rather, they are sent to personally torment those who are dead and dying, spiritually speaking, those who are either are or will become followers of the beast. These locust-like demons terrify those they intend to subjugate so that the people will know that they had better not stray from the tenets of the kingdom of the beast. And since the beast is the angel of the bottomless darkness, the angel of the abyss, his kingdom will push people to do things of darkness that they could have never imagined they were capable of doing. Yet it will all be done pursuant to the threat of having to face his secret police and the horrible torment that lasts for five months. Okay, you might be thinking that I'm making things up, and I might be. But we know that at the end of the next trumpet, the second woe, the people literally dig into the resistance of Yahweh. And despite all that will be happening, including the deaths of so many people, they did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murderers, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. From a certain perspective, it seems that these locust-like demons serve their purpose, which is to terrorize and torment people into loyalty. The eight likes. 
There are eight likes used in this passage as these locust-like demons are compared to something within our mortal realm, something to which we can relate. Since according to the code, eight is the number of new beginnings, this speaks of the new life these demons are given, a resurrection of sorts. When all of them, including their king, was thought to be dead, as they had disappeared from the spiritual realm and the mortal realm into the depths and darkness of the abyss. These eight descriptions might also speak of the new life of those who are attacked by these demons, as it signifies that their future is doomed. First, horses. First, the appearance of the locust-like demons was like horses prepared for battle. This means these demons are wearing battle regalia. They are decorated in such a way that if you saw them, you would know they were purposed for and ready for war. Now, with prepared being rendered in the perfect passive participle, we know that they were given their decor sometime in the past, and they put it on and have been displaying their battle regalia for some time. They knew there was a day appointed for their release. They clearly did not know that day, but they knew they were going into a war, so they had been preparing. Second, crowns of deception. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. They had what appeared to be Stephanos, crowns of victory, the same type of crowns which Jesus promised to those in Smyrna who had remained faithful unto death during their 10 days of tribulation. It is also the same type of crown that those in Philadelphia possessed and whom Jesus exhorted to remain faithful so no one would take their crown. It is the crown the elders are wearing, golden crowns of victory. And finally, it is the crown that the rider of the white horse was wearing, a crown of victory. But instead of it being gold, which according to the code is a symbol of divinity, a symbol of Yahweh, these demons had what appeared to be crowns like gold, not really crowns and not really gold. The imagery implies that these demons will have a significant role in religious deception. They can work in our physical realm or with or in people or institutions in a way that they seem to be of God. They seem to be like true victorious believers, but they are not. They can only look like they have golden crowns of victory, like those who are now overcoming, but they are fake. It is a deception. Third, faces of men. The plot thickens. Third, their faces were like the faces of men. These must be demons of exceedingly high order, given that their faces were like the faces of men, as man is the epitome of God's creation, for man is the image and glory of God. However, this also gives us another clue as to why this spirit included all this detail. These angels do not have the faces of men, but faces which are like men. This supports the idea that they have the means to work their religious deception in and through mankind. These demons likely have a lot of experience possessing men and women who are found to be in the household of God amongst Yahweh's bondservants. But they are the tares, the Ishmaels of the world, the descendants of Hagar, those who look like legitimate sons, but are not. They are fakers, Decepticons. Jump to the past. Suddenly, there's a significant change in the code. With the next three likes, we are drawn into the technical past tense as three different times the spirit suddenly utilizes the imperfect active indicative. In a way, this is a perfect clue as three 
is code for perfection. As John has been describing these things he sees, the visions, he generally utilizes the aorist indicative, and it is translated, they had. But this generalized use of the past tense does not tie us to time, nor to a specific event. Rather, it is a simple statement of what happened. However, the jump to the imperfect does tie us to a certain time or to certain events in the past. And it is a clue placed there by the Spirit to help us understand the true nature of these beings, a clue as to how they interacted with mankind in the past. Again, the Spirit is intent on us understanding intimate and very personal details regarding these monstrous creatures. We just need to pay attention to the details he provides. Fourth, fifth, and sixth, the hair of women, teeth of lions, breastplates of iron. They had hair like the hair of women, teeth like the teeth of lions, and breastplates like breastplates of iron. Continuing with the idea that they are religious Decepticons, a woman's hair tends to disarm or seduce a person as it is a symbol of beauty and vulnerability. In the past, they likely utilized the people they inhabited in seductive ways to get other people to trust them, to let down their guard, and to attract others. Once disarmed and trust was established, these demons would tear their victims apart, ripping meat out of them the way a lion does to its prey. So what about the breastplate? The purpose of a breastplate is to prevent any damage to the heart or lungs. Accordingly, iron provides us an image of something inflexible, rigid, and hard, which can provide ample protection in battle. Spiritually speaking, an iron guard over the chest would prevent the internal organs from being impacted by the two-edged sword of the Word of God. And for those purposes, nothing works better than the inflexibility and rigidity of the law. So perhaps these demons work through religious people to enforce the inflexibility of the law, keeping others from coming to abide in the grace and mercy of Yahweh and prevent them from living according to the unrestrained freedom of God's agape love. With the hair, teeth, and the breastplates working together, these demons can attract and disarm while simultaneously demanding strict adherence to an unbending requirement of a spiritual principle or a moral behavior. And those who do not keep the requirement, they tear apart piece by piece. This is how religious leaders have managed and controlled people for centuries upon centuries. It is likely these sorts of demons are the ones who worked in and through these religious leaders to tear the spiritual life out of people who were once legitimately seeking God, which is why the Spirit used the imperfect active indicative to clue us into what has been done before throughout the centuries. Since the Spirit told us that they had these things in the past before their internment in the abyss, it makes sense that they are now going to go out and deceive the people of the world who do not have the mark of God on the forehead. Again, they are religious Decepticons. This is supported by the image of the beast, the Spirit and its kingdom, with the woman now choosing to be sitting on it. She is Mystery Babylon or the mother of apostate religion. This is also supported by the idea that the beast, the spirit and its kingdom, takes his seat of authority from within the sanctuary. This kingdom will arise to power and global acceptance through the vehicle of religion right up to the point that the beast turns against religion and burns it to the ground. 
The secret police will demand loyalty first to the false religion that is inflexible as iron and rooted in Christianity, and then to the false messiah, the beast, and to all the tenants of his kingdom. Seventh, the sound of chariots. When it comes to the sound of their wings, the imperfect was not utilized. In fact, no verb was utilized at all that would direct us to the past tense. Therefore, this inclusion of was like is not in the Greek. Thus, the emphasis is not on what used to be, what had been, but more on what is. The sound of their wings, like the sound of chariots, of many horses now rushing into battle. Given the imagery, the sound of their wings must be deafening and threatening. People of old would know that sound, and it would freak them out. They would know they had better be prepared for war or run quickly and hide. The idea here is that as these demons move amongst humanity, the sound they emit is deafening, extremely loud, and downright scary and threatening. So why do you think the Spirit did not just say that the sound of their wings was very loud? Once again, the Spirit is making this all very personal. He seems he wants us to connect their movement amongst humanity with a terrible and frightening sound of impending doom and personal judgment. War is afoot. And these demons move quickly and with purpose. And they bring with them a real threat of war and violence against humanity. Eighth, tales like scorpions. The code once again switches and brings us into the present. As the Spirit directs John to no longer talk about what they had, but specifically about what they now have. They now have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. They had hair like a woman. They had teeth like lions. They had what were breastplates of iron. And they now have tails like scorpions and stings and the power to hurt men for five months. The Spirit separated out for us from the other descriptions the weapons of these creatures. Tails being like scorpions, the sting and the power, which is in their tails, to hurt men for five months. A threefold description of perfect weaponry. The tail. Having tails like a scorpion speaks to us of the way the tail works. It can strike you unexpectedly. The tail of a scorpion can whip over its head and strike things in front of it. Its victim might be looking at the menacing pinchers of the scorpion and worried about getting pinched when suddenly from above, the stinger strikes them completely unexpectedly. In like manner, these locust-like demons will lure, seduce, and attract people, hence the hair of women. And when they have their attention, they will attack unexpectedly. Their attack will be by surprise on unexpecting victims. Stings. They have stings. The tail may be an idiom which provides for us characteristics about these creatures, but their possession of stings makes it certain that they will cause severe torment, so much so that people will seek death. There is nothing about the description of the stings that seems idiomatic. People will suffer, and these demons will inflict the torment. They will cause physical torment. Power in their tails. Their power is in their tails. In the Codex, the tail has a unique meaning that is to be understood in code, for it is tied to the prophetic gifting. And for that, we will turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 13 through 16. Yet the people do not turn back to him who struck them, nor do they seek Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. So Yahweh cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush in a single day. The head is the elder and honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. For those who guide this people are leading them astray, 
and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. This imagery is perfectly in line with these demons being religious Decepticons, experts in the realm of religious falsehood. In this instance, the prophetic message they bring through the people or institutions that they inhabit is targeted at reinforcing people's loyalty to the kingdom of the beast and its false messiah through sheer terror and torment. Perhaps they are providing false prophecy regarding the power, authority, and majesty of their king and giving people reasons beyond the torment to become hard and fast advocates of the beast, bearing his name or the number of his name. Their power is associated with the false prophetic words they bring to others. Power to hurt men. The power that is in their tales, their prophetic abilities, is used very specifically to hurt people. The Greek word that is used signifies to do wrong, to act unjustly, to harm, or to injure. This definition is markedly different than what we were told previously about their sting-bringing torment. Hence, the power to hurt is focusing our attention on the description that comes from the prophetic lies and not so much on the impact of the sting. These prophetic lies will harm these people as those who swallow their lives will be condemned to drink the wine of the wrath of God. They will be tormented with fire and brimstone and they will have no rest day or night and they will know the second death. These prophetic lies will be part of their seduction and how they get the attention of those who are not now marked with Yahweh's signet. Their prophetic lies will cause a harm that will condemn people to eternal suffering. Five months. This is the second time this power to hurt people for five months is mentioned. Clearly, the Spirit does not want us to just pass by this too quickly. Five is a significant number according to the code, as it has a dual meaning. On the one hand, it is a symbol of God's grace, represented by those who with his seal on their foreheads, and by those who have life symbolized by the green in their souls. By the grace of God, they will be protected from this attack. On the other hand, five is a symbol of the abject neediness of man for God, represented by those who are vulnerable to this attack, yet who do not choose to turn to the grace of God for help. The truth is that these people are needy, 100% needy, for God's help, but they are given to deception. And since it is mentioned twice, with two being the number of division and witness, their torment stands as a clear demarcation between the people of God and the people of the beast. The torment secures their vulnerable to doom. Summary of the details. It seems that the Spirit gave us so much detail so we could understand the complexity of these demons' past and how it plays out in their release from the abyss. Whether through others they inhabit or somehow through their influence on people or in institutions, they will prey on the unsuspecting, and they will physically hurt them and cause them intense suffering for five months. And it is through this torment, through the deepest levels of fear, that they acquire unto their king people who will follow the beast and serve him. Their message or their deception will be prophetic in nature, laced with all manner of religious deception about their future, their Messiah, their victory, and their rule. After all, in their past, they were masters of deception and seduction, and their unsuspecting victims will, under the threat of more suffering, choose to follow their lies. In so doing, they will reject the grace of God and instead choose to remain in the state of abject neediness. They will look to the king of these demons for their life, not understanding they are dooming themselves, subjecting themselves to the wrath of God. The Codex. 
the Locust Army. We have asked the question as to why the Holy Spirit included all the detail about this locust-like army of demons. Perhaps he did not want us to miss the connection in the Codex. Previously, it was prophesied that right before the fearful day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, there would come an, an invasion of an army described as locusts that would be bent on destruction. All of this is recorded in the very small three-chapter book of Joel, and it includes all the relevant details that parallel our passage. The day of the Lord, Yahweh, destruction from the Almighty, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a great and mighty horde, translated as people, like a mighty people arranged for battle. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again. An army of locusts swarming, creeping, stripping, They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. Nothing at all escapes them. Teeth of lion and fangs like a lioness. Appearance like horses and their war horses they run with a noise as of chariots. Before them the people are in anguish. Literally they writhe in pain. All faces turn pale. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. This description comes from Joel 1 through 2. With allusions to the physical, a locust invasion into the land, it clearly describes a spiritual army, a demonic army. There's a troubling line in Joel 2.11 that perhaps has led many to not make the connection to the locust-like demons of Revelation 9, 1-11. In our English translations, it is said that Yahweh, the Lord, utters his voice before his army. And perhaps this translation detail is why many do not make or refuse to make the connection to the locust-like demons released from the abyss. After all, didn't we just read that they are the army of Abaddon, led by the beast, destruction himself, and not the army of Yahweh? In the Hebrew, this statement is rendered in the third person. So it could also be translated as either their army or this army. Understanding the context in the parallel passage in Revelation 9, the better translation would be that Yahweh the Lord utters his voice before this or their army. Let's look at the complete statement, Joel 2.11. Yahweh, the Lord, utters his voice before this army. Surely this camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of Yahweh is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? The phrasing of this passage is simply another way of saying that he, Yahweh, is the first and the last. He speaks it. He prophesies it to the people, and he is strong enough to ensure that his word is carried out, for strong is he who carries out his word. And we see the fulfillment of this vision in the locust army that is released from the abyss. In other words, everything Yahweh says comes true. It's just a matter of time. We'll pick up in our next podcast as we dive into understanding the king or angel of the abyss. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com that is t-h-r-e-s-h-e-r mediagroup.com this is Steve with Thresher Media Group when you're ready to listen tune in